Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiengzinski and I will be your host. Hello everybody, welcome to the Fireside Show. Today we're touching the subject of fire resistance or resistance to fire. Well, we're actually going to set that up later in the episode. It's something that uh, we do here at the ITB at our fire testing laboratory. And I many times I have told you that we fire professionals, especially ones that work with fire resistance as a concept, work with fire resistance tests, we understand the thing a little bit different than most of fire professionals because we know some insider stuff that dictates how materials behave, how they pass the tests, what's happening uh, within the test. So for today, I thought that it may be a great lesson for the fire engineers to learn something about how fire resistance is actually done in the fire laboratory. And for that purpose, I didn't have to look far for the guest. It's it's my great colleague, Dr. Piotr Turkowski, uh, who... I had the privilege to sit across the desk and I've learned so much about fire resistance from that time. I'm sure uh, now having him on this uh, on this podcast will uh, allow us to, to learn a lot about it uh, together even more. So yeah, Piotr's already here. Hello, Piotr. Great to have you here. Hello, Wojciech. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Long time no see. <laughs> Great to have you in the podcast finally. Piotr, you're very involved. Like, Can you give a brief introduction to yourself, to, to, to the listeners? Uh, I mean, you're representative of ITB and CN committees for fire resistance testing. You're our man in e-golf. You're doing lectures on how to perform fire tests properly. But yeah, give us a few words about yourself. That was actually a very nice introduction. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I work at ITB for over 11 years right now, actually almost 12. So I did hundreds of tests, witnessed double the amount. I, I do participate in SEN committees, SEN TC127 in particular, and SEN SC250, so the one for the, for Eurocodes and the one for fire resistance testing. I also do give some of my opinions uh, on Eagle Forum. I also participate in those meetings in fire sector group, basically uh, for the past few years, I've been sent to any fire group there actually is that has something to do with our work in the laboratory. I, I did my PhD on carbon fire polymers, fire protection of, of, of such for reinforced concrete structures. Yeah, I'd say that is a summary of my person. Thank you very much. You can also name emotions in, in musical tracks, which I find amazing. And you also somehow know your codes by heart, which <laughs> I find disturbing. <laughs> so let's jump into the, the subject, fire resistance. So if a person on the street, if you pick a random person on the street, and tell them, if I have a wall which have one hour fire resistance, what does that mean? I My guess would be they will tell you, oh, it will resist fire for one hour. But that's not a very precise answer to the question because the question, well, as I know, working uh, with you at ITB, fire resistance is a very precise thing. So first of all, let's try to define it. Like what exactly is a fire resistance rating and fire resistance on its own? I think this is a very good topic to start with because it's a very misunderstood concept of what fire resistance is. And if we go into testing, 
we would uh, define fire resistance in classes. And a fire resistance class is something else than fire resistance itself. Because fire resistance class includes a test method which you have used to determine this parameter. And it also includes the criteria you have applied to it. So for example, if I say a fire resistance class of a concrete beam R60, and that I will say that I have achieved that class during a test, it will mean something completely different. If I say the same thing, but I would define the fire resistance class as, for example, a Eurocode does, or any other person could actually define his own parameters because the Eurocode will use the temperatures inside the steel reinforcement. It would actually use uh, bending momentum criteria or shear resistance and stuff like that. Whether in fire resistance testing, the only criterion for load-bearing capacity is actually deflection of the element. It can be of any temperature whatsoever up to certain point of deflection, which is actually quite insane. We, we would say that it has the fire resistance. And for example, this exact parameter has changed two years ago. Because before we had one value of that deflection, uh, I will not bother you with the equation. But mm -hmm. right now, we have multiplied the deflection by one and a half. So we actually allow 50% more deflection. And I think this approach is actually still better than the one that was also proposed. Because what people actually proposed at Sen was that only the failure, the breaking of the test specimen, its collapse can be considered as loss of load-bearing capacity, fire resistance. And we actually can observe the quite opposite thing. For example, roofs tend to have a breaking point after something like 10 minutes, where they suddenly increase their deflection by 10, 20 centimeters very rapidly, and then they stop. And sometimes it's enough to lose load-bearing cap capacity, and sometimes it is not. But there is no failure. That roof can withstand another 20 or 30 minutes of fire. So fire resistance is basically what you want it to be. If you define your criteria and you present them to the reader, then obviously he will, he will know what you mean. But if you go and say to someone, yeah, I have a wall of one hour fire resistance, that actually means nothing. It, it means absolutely nothing. So, so yeah, the thing we, we do in the laboratory and the thing we do in our opinions most of the time, because we also act according to the uh, legislature, which asks us for fire resistance classes and it asks us for certain parameters in accordance with certain standards, the EN 13501 part two or Eurocodes. So we have to follow them up, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with, the, with those criteria or not, we just follow them because that's basically the way that has been adopted that allows products to be compared. It's a little disturbing. Fire resistance can be whatever you want it to be. I mean, it seems like the answer is 42 to that question <laughs> yeah. in that case. Um, anyway, you've mentioned it being multiple things at the same time. On one way, it is like a cooking receipt for the test, you know, add this amount of, of heat or temperature to the furnace, uh, measure this parameter. If it goes beyond this, it's failure. If not, it, it's okay. Measure the time with uh, specific uncertainties, measure everything around. And this is like the outcome of the test is, is truly the fire resistance as tested for the Common man, it could be how long my building will withstand the fire without defining what the fire is. Yeah. For a firefighter, 
It could be, uh, or for the legislator, it could be a very convenient way to parameterize fire safety in the building code. Well, you just need one number, like R60 or REI120. You're good. If you if your thing does the, this test in this way, you're good. And and then for the manufacturers, it would it would be another thing. As you said, it's a tool for comparison. It's like a measure in which they can compare the properties of their products measured in, let's say, all in the same way, because they did every every product would have their own stunt. And I think this is also important. We measure fire resistance of certain building elements. Like you measure a wall, you measure a column, you measure a, a ceiling, but we don't really measure the, the, the whole systems together. We don't measure the fire resistance of a building, right? Like how, how tricky it is to convert, for example, a slab from a building into the fire test. I mean, it will act completely different in, in, in the furnace than in the building, right? You're a structural engineer, enlighten me. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And obviously, every lab, so are we, we are limited by our furnaces, by the furnace size. <laughs> there is a way to build a big furnace. We, we do have two such furnaces. One of them that we call Chimera can, can be extended to 12 meters span of elements. But at the same time, if you take a 12 meter span element, like a pre-stressed concrete beam or maybe pre-stressed concrete yep. floor, and you calculate the deflection, when then you start to wonder, hmm, is the 3.7 meter depth of our furnace enough to accommodate for the deflection? Because the criterion goes insane. The criteria are... Yep are written as for a standard uh, size of test specimens, like three by three meters as for walls and four by three for, for floors. And then maybe they work. But otherwise, we, we start to see some insane uh, deflections allowed or insane uh, rate of deflections where uh, basically the test specimen could bend uh, toward our furnace mm. to, to half of its depth and have, I don't know, burners above the actual test specimen. And it wouldn't still be considered as a failure. So, so obviously there is a great limitation of what we can test and then how it applies to actual building. There are two ways to deal with that. We can build bigger furnaces, and so did we. We mm. built a Phoenix furnace, which is 7 meters tall and 10 meters wide, and very uh, soon test test that uh, made our previous understanding of behavior of test specimen irrelevant because suddenly some completely different failure modes occurred. For example, for lightweight partitions made of gypsum boards, the whole world tested three by three meters walls, but the actual need was for so much bigger walls, like maybe in a cinema or in theater or, or in other spaces where you had to have like eight meter tall wall, maybe even 12 meters. So what, what can you do if you only have a three by three a furnace. You can start to calculate. Uh, but what happened when we've tested such wall? Well, the, the unexpected happened because the, the wall didn't fail because of the deflection. It didn't fail because of the temperature. It failed because the actual length of the arc of the wall, once it deflected, made it disconnect from the top fixing. Mm. It basically unfixed itself from the from the lintel. So, yeah. so, so it failed in a way that no one has ever thought of thought before. So what the producers do right now, they create a kind of telescope, a special mm. device at the top of the wall to make it move downwards and upwards uh, throughout the entire test or maybe throughout the fire in, in your building. Because 
we only can say what we saw in test. And that was unexpected. The same thing happened with hollow core concrete slabs. Well, the first thought of everybody was, well, what's difficult about concrete? It's just reinforcement. You calculate bending momentum, you calculate the temperature of the reinforcement and you have everything. And then people started testing those and they didn't fail because of bending. They failed because of shear failure. And then they failed because the anchorage was not enough in, in the anchorage zone. And it's very funny to observe how that knowledge spreads to standards. Because if you go for a standard for hollow core slabs, the EN 1168, and you read its first edition from 2000 something, it's bending failure is enough. Then you go have plus I1. Well, bending failure is not enough. You have to consider shear. Then you have plus A2 edition. You know what? Actually include anchorage as well. And then there's plus three edition. You know what? The shear and anchorage is actually way more severe. And if you go with the same concrete <laughs> slab between these four editions of the standard, you go from REI 180 to REI 60, something like that, for the same product. And throughout the years, people, people were doing that. And it's incredible because the standard uh, was issued in something like 2005. And I remember, my, okay, I don't remember because I wasn't at ITB at the time. But I know that we have done such tests in 2002 at ITB together with DBI from Denmark. We've done such tests and we've shown the, this, this problem. And it took SEN only 10 years to incorporate that into the standard. Which for SEN is, is actually not that slow. Which for SEN is actually not that slow, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. 10 years later, yesterday, I uh, had an opportunity to, to review a paper submitted to a journal last three months, something like that. And it was about hollow core and hollow sphere concrete slabs. And all that knowledge is not present. People only care about bending. They still forget about shear. They still forget about the anchorage, and they don't include that in their calculations. So, so you 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 said that the way to understand bigger elements, to understand the effects of scale, which at this point we were relying purely on on the calculation methods or our predictions uh, or our expectations on how bigger elements would behave. Yes. Now, now we can build bigger furnaces to accommodate bigger elements to observe these effects of scale. My issue with that, and it's in a way critique of my own laboratory, but it is what it is. My issue with that is that the furnace was never a great representation of a real fire. Even, you know, the three by three meter furnace, if we, even if you assume that it's fully flash over fire, it, it's not a perfect representation. It's not a representation at all. It's, it's just a furnace condition. However, as you build bigger furnaces, the further away you go from real fires, like, but the big furnace we have is, is 10 by 7 meter tall. Like, the hell, what, what kind of fire does that represent? I mean, it, it's gigantic. I, I really struggle to imagine a fire that would have uniform conditions, because that, that's also a point. The furnace is, is meant to provide you in uniform conditions over the sample. Now, I, I struggle to see a fire that would provide uniform conditions over, over a sample. So maybe we're... You know, these telescopes, these, these uh, solutions that are invented to pass the test, are they going further away for fire, from, from real fire? Are, are they serving the safety or just serving the glass? That, that, that's like a, that, that's something I struggle with. That's a really good point, which I was trying to get to. But it's a really good point, showing that the first way we can deal with 
bigger elements with real buildings is building bigger furnaces is actually not the way <laughs> because it, they yeah. do not represent real fires. These fires would have to be insane to be so long, so consistent over the entire volume, the entire space that is in fire. We, we do get away f- from what the actual fire is. But the other option is actually not better because the other option is calculations. And that's the way that our mm-hmm. standards, so-called EXAPs, the extended application uh, of test results standards are. They go with calculations, but the way they do it, they cut so much science out of them to mm-hmm. basically incorporate uh, only equations that uh, apply that, that include addition, maybe some multiplication, maybe one more factor or something like that. And sometimes even, not, not even that. They are just wishes. Mm. Like if we keep the lightweight partitions in, in place, you can do 12 meter wall with that exap. But the way you do it, well, they say, okay, the way you can have a higher wall, you just have to have an overtime. You know, if your wall was 60 minutes and you get 66 minutes, uh, that's good enough, you know, and then you, and you can start building higher walls. This is absolutely not a scientific approach. And I don't want to be mean to anybody who wrote that. I know how hard it is to work on such standards. Mm. And that's basically the reason why new EXAP standards have to have their background documents to see, to, for people to see how people came with such solutions. But what they do is, 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 is there is no science in that. For masonry walls, it's, this, it's almost the same. If you have managed to get your wall for 60 minutes and the deflection of the wall towards the furnace wasn't bigger than half of its thickness, which is almost never the case, then you can raise the wall up to eight meters because of reasons, basically. Okay. It's important to to say that to, to people who are not involved in writing the standards in this part of fire engineering, the people involved in, in these committees are usually two types of people. Either there are people representing the, the laboratories, which I'm sorry, they have in, their interests. Like there are certain sizes of elements written in the standards for a reason, because it's it's the furnaces that exist. You don't want to write a standard for furnaces that do not exist because then people have an issue. And the other group is manufacturers, producers, in a way lobbyists, you know, that, that represent the, their own particular interests of putting products on the market. And I essentially, there is nothing wrong with that, as long as we understand it is like that. It's not a group of scientists who would start thinking, what is the ultimate measure of safety of a masonry wall? And let's define it, how to build the safest wall in the world. No, it's not that. It's, it's about how can we put the product on the market with the standardized test that everyone on the table agrees to, right? Yes, that, that, that's exactly the, the group of people uh, we meet at SEN. They're great people. They're smart people. They're nice people. It's in their agenda. They come to the meeting, which is related to where they work, who they work for, and what, how, how they earn their living. It, it's not about the people. It's about the system. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, I had to say that. I, I like these people. <laughs> I like these people very much. Each one of them, it's really nice to meet them, uh, even though it's only on Teams uh, right now. But... I like to see myself as a person that uh, acts on the benefit of a user. That I don't want to write a standard or participate in writing a standard that increases the amount of testing that needs to be done. 
if it's unnecessary, if, if it actually misrepresents the science we have. And one example of this can be uh, seen in Eurocode versus the fire testing of fire protection of concrete elements. Because in Eurocode, in the okay. new edition, the concrete up to a very high class of concrete, C70, is immune to spalling. But in fire testing, oh. every concrete is Ooh. is susceptible to spawning. And you have to test a range of concrete classes to actually give that. And I am fighting very hard to change that, to reduce the, the, the amount of testing that needs to be done. But otherwise, you can see some insane actions from the manufacturers, especially in glazed partitions, in glazed doors, where they do have very complex elements. Glazed door is made of 60 to 80 components, and each one of them ha can have some influence over the fire resistance. Yeah. You have a lock, you have the closing. Gasket, shield, knob, everything has an impact. Yeah. The gel, the glass, the aluminum class, everything. So... There's a lot of parameters. So obviously they don't, they do not want to make a hundred tests because it's, it, it costs. It's basically a cost. And in the end, who will pay that? It's not them. It, yeah. it, it will be the users. The product will be simply more expensive. So I'm, I, I'm trying to balance this, but it, it's a really hard topic to balance, especially because of the way we perceive certain criteria and the way we measure them. Some of them are very yeah. quantitative, the temperature. Temperature, the yeah. temperature is, is quite obvious, but it's also a point of discussion. And we do, we do stick with the 140 and 180 Kelvin temperature rise over the unexposed surface most of the time. But there are voices, voices that comes from important people like Barbauskas, who says, no, it's, it's too low. You can rise it up to 300, maybe even 400 centigrees. And that would change the whole market because suddenly... So many other products could be seen as fire resistant. Sorry, but, but the challenge, do we even know where these values came from? This 140, 180, like, or are these are the words written in the code forever and no one even dares to, to touch the origin of them? Because it's also very interesting as a concept. It's, it has, the fire resistance as a concept has a buildup of 100 years for now. So do we, do we know that? I know just a little, and I don't know if it's big, big just just a rumor. <laughs> uh, yes, maybe just some rumors, and I don't know if it's because uh, such knowledge doesn't exist, or maybe I just didn't have time or skill to dig up to it. But as for the temperature, it's supposed to represent the element that could be on the other side that could actually ignite from the temperature okay. itself. And Barbauskas. Mm argues that, that this is, if that's the case, that the temperature needed is not that. It's way more than that. So why do we stick with such low temperatures? Yeah. If I had to place a bet, I would bet that someone just 100 years ago, they just did the test. Okay, that looks okay. Let's stick with that. And <laughs> if I had to bet money, my money on that, I, I would put it on, on that. And if any one of you listeners know the origins of that, I'm very interested in learning that. Because, uh, oh boy, as a fire safety community, we have totally lost our ability to understand where the magic numbers came from. And yeah, that's one of my goals in the podcast. You started talking about intumescence. Yeah, go. I, I'll go. I just want to give one more story about the temperature. Yeah, yeah. Because okay. we do stick with the 180, let's say, Kelvins as a temperature rise, yes? But sometimes it's yeah. not so convenient. Sometimes the market actually can influence the way we perceive fire resistance. So, for example, in Great Britain, they have a ton of uh, wooden door. Yeah, Th they yeah. like them, and they can keep 
this criteria. They can maintain the temperature rise below that value. But if you have steel door with steel frame, there is absolutely no way. It, this, is, this is just too much of insulation you're asking. So what we did, well, if you cannot keep the I1 criteria, let's go with I2 criteria. And that allows you to have a temperature rise of 360 Kelvins in certain areas. So, you know, if it's not mm. convenient, we can change that. But otherwise, let's keep the, the other <laughs> yeah. criteria. Uh. As for the intumescent, well, that's a story of, of many aspects on how to game the fire testing, on how to game the product into being good for the test. But you have absolutely no idea how it will behave in a real fire, or maybe you have very limited amount of knowledge. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to speak in such absolutes. So, why is that? Intumescent paint basically works because it swells, because it produces yep. that foam and encapsulates air or gases inside of it. And those gases are basically the insulation. But the activation of the products inside intumescent paint doesn't happen just like that. It happens because a certain heat flux acts on it. And in a standard testing, first of all, the temperature always rises. Second of all, the temperature rises in very particular way. You have a pre-described fire curve. And then if heat acts on intumescent paint, some first products will start to swell at 200 centigrees, then maybe at 250, 300, and so on, up to a point where you have a really nice foam that starts to insulate and your temperature rise in steel gets much, much lower. And then you can keep the temperature below a certain temperature of, let's say, 500 centigrees for maybe 30 or 60 minutes, maybe even 90. But what would happen if that fire wasn't like that? What could happen if your fire, very small at the beginning, maybe it's only 200 centigrees, but then suddenly you have the flash over and then it goes more like standard temperature? Well, people mm -hmm. thought of that and they introduced the smoldering curve. And some countries require that, some, some do not. And you check whether your paint would behave in a same manner, whether whether it will still act in, in a in a much lower temperature, in a much slower yes. curve. To say in a so, much yeah. lower curve at the beginning, and then when it goes mm -hmm. to the regular curve. But there are two curves they've tested, and that's it. What would happen if you had the opposite? What could happen if you have a intumescent paint? on an element that could be subjected to very rapid and very high temperature fire at the beginning, and then it gets lower. So for example, a hydrocarbon fire, that would be mm. completely different behavior. And it, 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 was, it was observed. I mean, we do it all the time. We can see that the swelling ratio of the paint is not exactly the same for, the, for one curve or mm. another. And when I said about gaming the, the fire testing, well, the fire testing for the first five to 10 minutes is basically chaos. It's mayhem. Anything can happen in the furnace. It almost doesn't matter what your temperature is because your criteria start to kick in around the 10th minute. It almost doesn't matter what the pressure is because also it, the, this, this criterion kicks in uh, after five minutes. So you have a period of when you can do in tests something that will influence your test result, but something that will never be seen by anyone who only reads uh, the classification in the end. So we had such customers who knows that and who know what to do to game. And they've asked us, for example, to increase the pressure 
in the furnace in the first minutes because it doesn't matter, but because it will help to activate the product, the intumescent, so it swells better. That, that's one way. Yep. The other way to game it is that standards are not perfect. They tend to give some, some guidance of what your test specimen should be. But then you can choose such test specimen, and I'm speaking particularly about intumescent paint and sprayed mortars or board fire protection systems, the one which are mm -hmm. tested in accordance to EN 13, 381, part four and part eight, where you can take such mm -hmm. load bearing beam that your failure will occur at such point that you will get always the best correction factor. I don't want to go into much detail of, on, on what that is. I think that if people know these products and know what correction factor is, they will know how much it influences the, the results. So people are gaming that. And we change standards because of this, but we know only as little as we have thought ourselves or what the customers told, told us. But they probably have some aces up their sleeves <laughs> still. It's everywhere where you assess a family because uh, if you have to assess a family of products, it's literally impossible to test them all. So there must be a way to extending the, the individual tests into the performance of a whole family. We have the exact same thing in natural smoke ventilators where we assess the discharge coefficient of the ventilator and the standard basically tells you what types of vents to take for this test based on their, the ratio of their dimensions. And it tells you to take at least four. Sometimes you can take a little more than that and then just find which combination of four between them gives the most optimistic uh, assumption about the, the performance of the family. And uh, I mean, th that's the way how the industry works. Uh, that's why I wanted to do this podcast as, as well, because uh, the fire resistance or, or the fire properties, how they are assessed in the laboratory, it is a much, much bigger story than just the index. It's not that you take the same wall, put it in a furnace in Poland, in France, in UK, and expect it to be the exact same. There are these minuscule differences. Of course, in our e-golf groups, uh, in our CN commissions, we, we, we share this knowledge. We, we try to work up the standards so they're harder to gain, that are more unbiased, but it, it's a slow process. But you, you've also mentioned that in scientific papers, you have not observed the, in a particular paper, you have not observed the growth that you have observed in, in, in the standard. And, and from this talk alone, we already see there's so much knowledge hidden in the laboratory people. Does this knowledge surface anywhere else than CN committees? Does your experiences or experiences of our colleagues in other labs actually influence how, how fire safety is delivered in the world? Or is it a secret knowledge passed from generation of lab workers to the next generation? Uh, honestly, I, I'm starting to doubt it even surfaces in SAN anymore <laughs> because the way the okay. new standards are changing, that's, that's sad. especially uh, Eurocode for masonry walls, I don't think that there is an, enough proof for the claims that the standard uh, wants to introduce. Uh, it, the same happens for glazed products. And for example, we are working currently or beginning to work for fire protection for aluminum products. And we've asked mm. everybody to share their test results. I think for the past 12 months, we haven't received any. So maybe laboratories keep them to themselves. Maybe they don't want, they don't want to publish them. But I think... There is another topic here that is influencing very much how we perceive fire testing. 
And th okay. this is the uncertainties that are inherent to fire testing. And we see them very much, especially in round robins. I, I've heard you like stories. I will give you the story that will yeah. makes you not want to do any fire test anymore. So you've mentioned you've mentioned eGolf. eGolf is a great yeah. group. It's a group of fire testing yeah. laboratories. There are very many of them. We tend to be number one there. So we like them. Oh. We like yeah. to share the logo on our test reports. Unfortunately, eGolf is not longer Googleable <laughs> because of introduction of electrical golf yeah. from Volkswagen. So yeah. yeah. So I, I will share you I will share with you this. I need to give you the link. You cannot Google yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> there is a secret link. It's eGolf.global. There is no way you could think of global as a domain, but it exists. So eagle.global, yeah. that's that is your address. So they do round robins. And round robins are great when you think about them. And then they are very terrible when you start to compare the test results. So they did yeah. uh, many uh, round robins in for the past few years. And I want to talk about two of them. One which I yeah. have personally participated in and the one that happened recently that caused so much trouble and such ripple in fire testing that will hopefully change many ways that we do fire testing. So the first one is about steel beam. Imagine a steel beam made without any fire protection material whatsoever. All of the steel beams come from one factory. They do have the same properties or basically the paper claims they do have all the same properties. The steel beam is HEB300. It's loaded mm -hmm. in a very little way. It's only about 20% of its load-bearing capacity. And each lab tests two of such beams. You, you couldn't imagine a more simple test. It's only steel beam. And if we... If, no, no protection. No protection whatsoever. Only steel, fully exposed to fire on three sides. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about the criteria. The deflection criteria were made for steel. They weren't made for concrete, they weren't made for timber, for any other product. They weren't mm. made for steel. So the, the criterion itself basically applies to the very test specimen you are testing. So many labs, I think there were over 20, participated in this round robin. Could you imagine what the spread of test results was for steel beam? 20%. 20% would be really nice. <laughs> the actual spread, Shit. I will give you our results. I don't, want, I don't want to do a commercial of ITB, but it will be a commercial of ITB because we have to test two such beams. And the difference in our test results was 15 seconds for the failure. It was 29 minutes mm. and 29 minutes and 15 seconds. So basically I'd say, mm. yeah, that, that this is nice. And the beam was designed for 30 minutes. The beam was designed for 30 minutes. But when you yeah. checked the results of every other lab, well, some of them got 16 minutes, some of them got 45. So it's like... What? I mean, it's a steel beam. And I want to say our test results was really nice. We did a paper with colleague uh, Marek Ukomski on that. We compared our test results with calculation method from Eurocode. We also did a coupled analysis, thermo thermomechanical analysis of, of that beam, and we got the same result each time. But some labs got 16 minutes. You wouldn't want to go there, obviously. But the ones that got 45, well... Ooh, fantastic fantastic lab. lab. I mean, I will do all my tests there. So this is th this was steel beam, a very simple test. But the other round robin was about doors. So that's a way okay. more complex element. Oh. 
and oh. touches two subjects. The first one is that that product hasn't actually been tested before because its classification came exactly from what you've said, from evaluation of a family of products. So they didn't mm -hmm. test these doors in particular. They tested some other and they said, well, because this and that, this door could be regarded as the same class. They look, thir they, they look 30 to me. <laughs> they, look, they look 30 <laughs> to me. But here the spread was insane. It was between a few minutes to 90 or something like that. That, that, that virtually makes absolutely no physical sense on how that could happen. And even if we exclude a very failed test because of obvious mistakes, you still yeah. get a spread of 100 to 200% of the test results. Yeah. Is it 30 plus minus 30? Yeah. It's uh, 30 plus minus 30. Yeah, something like that. Which yeah. is, <laughs> what does it say of the product? And the, the, the problem is that it also showed how much different lab laboratories read the standard. The standards are maybe 30 pages long, some of them, and you can still find mysteries on how to deal with the pressure, how to deal with the temperature, where to, where to put thermocouples. And those mistakes, uh, maybe, okay, I don't want to say mistake, those misinterpretations of what was intended by some other general interpretation of the standard were so huge that there are courses ongoing right now on changing that. There are standards being changed on how to exactly calculate the pressure inside the furnace because it all influences your test results. So at the beginning, I said, if you say to me what a fire resistance class is, I will tell you it goes with the test method. But right now, you cannot even be sure of that because it actually also goes with the laboratory behind the test. And this is mm. something that shouldn't happen. But it's something yeah. that actually, unfortunately, is our reality. Oh man, I'm in the head of my listener now who entered this uh, podcast in expectation to learn what the fire curve is and how much pressure we applied in the furnace. And now we're in the world of uncertainty in, in experiments that's like 100% scatter. And, and then on the building, the firefighter will tell you, okay, this is 30 minute door. So they give you exact 30 minutes in, in the fire. And that's what publicity expects. That's what, uh, if there's a major fire, that's what the journalist will be digging into, you know? What was the fire resistance of that door? What classifications they have obtained? This, uh, I mean, I've expected that, but it's even worse than I thought. The, the, this, this disjoint of what the test is for us, for manufacturers, for AHAJs, and for general public. It, it, this is crazy. Uh, you, you maybe remember when we had our paper on fire resistance of, of timber walls in review. And we wrote something that the public understanding of the test is, is like this. So we really need to rethink the test to adjust it a little bit. So, so it represents reality better. The reviewer was like, wouldn't it be easier to just change how people perceive the test? Well, no, that's almost impossible to change the, the perception because we are working here in a very small circle of highly specialized people who are literally the only group who understands how it works. And then everyone else from fire engineers to fire scientists have some assumptions or, or presumptions of what we do, what we produce and uh, what the behavior of, of the elements is. I think this is a very important uh, 
and difficult podcast episode. <laughs> but thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, I have to look at on on the bright side of that. I don't want to be a nihilist, but it's very hard. It's very difficult. <laughs> Are we the good guys, Piotr? Are we the good guys? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I ask it my, my myself because what is the alternative? What is the alternative to testing? Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's chaos. It's chaos. It's even more of what made testing where it is now. It's more of calculations methods, more more of presumptions, more of expectations, what it would look like if it was a different, you know? It's uh, it's unvalidated modeling. It's reduction of meshes because of computational time, so I achieve my results quicker. It's the desktop studies in the UK. That, that's the alternative. So uh, out of these two worlds, I, I think uh, highly specialized people one who understand their craft because fire testing is a craft. In in the end, there, there's a place for fire laboratories, for sure. And the, the model worked. Uh, like, if you look at the bigger picture, the model has certainly worked in delivering fire safety to everyone. It's just these few fires that caused massive damage in which fire resistance was misunderstood. They're like the trouble now. Because overall, the, the model seems to be working fairly well. So maybe, maybe less uh, negative view. <laughs> At least for for once, yeah, yeah that that's definitely the, the 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 bright side of of the topic. We definitely have way less fires. We definitely have safer buildings, but but it's but there's a shade on that as well. Well, it comes yep. with a cost. We obviously incorporate very demanding classes from from many products. We incorporate other active fire prevention systems, uh, sprinklers, fire detection alarms stuff like that, smoke control. So there's a lot and, and it comes with a cost, obviously. It comes with a cost that our buildings do not cost anymore. What they did 50 years ago, they cost way more. Just like with cars, you, we put more and yep. more safety features in them, uh, automation and, and other things that we could live without, but they do increase our safety beyond maybe, okay, I, I don't know if it's beyond the point we need, Maybe there is no value to human life. It's invaluable, basically. It's priceless, yes. But, but then our car starts to be quite expensive. So are our buildings, and especially tunnels. We, we've discussed many mm -hmm. times on how the RWS fire came to be what it is and how it's now being applied to tunnels which are way taller, where you maybe mm -hmm. don't have such exposure anymore. But we still yep. do, uh, do act with RWS fire. And I think that brings us to to another topic uh, that could be uh, that we could talk about is what is the standard fire versus the real world fires? Yes. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. And how the behavior of material changes? Because if the alternative is calculations, and I fully agree with that, and a shift to numerical analysis or AI learning, machine learning. Uh, stuff is digital, digital twinning is is an interesting concept. In it will definitely happen. Then, how do we predict the behavior of the material we use for over century century right now, which is concrete? If you expose concrete to standard fire curve, it will most likely behave like like you would think it it would. Basically, the yep. no, nothing will happen, or some very superficial spalling will occur for the first few minutes of the testing. And basically that's it. There will be some moisture on the unexposed side and, and, and that's it. But if you put the same slab for hydrocarbon modified fire curve or RWS curve, it, it can actually explode. 
I mean, I've seen spalling that made the slab jump over the furnace and not like few millimeters. It jumped like to the height of my head. I've seen concrete elements exploding and people running away from the furnace because of the falling, because the concrete was pre-stressed. And once the strand was exposed to heat, it lost its capability to stress the concrete. And suddenly this whole energy released made the, the floor explode, virtually explode. We had concrete that melted our furnace. We had concrete that yep. contained basaltium aggregate and we exposed it to RWS curve. And after the test, we have found out that our very new furnace built a few months ago after very first test, requires a repair that costs hundreds of uh, thousands of, of euros because the whole lining was covered in melted basalt. I thought I would <laughs> get fired after that, but I didn't. So yeah. I was way more c- courageous for any other test I did in the future because I knew it, if that didn't get me fired, nothing is going to. Yeah, there's still marks on our furnace. If every one of you is invited to visit a fire testing laboratory, ten years later you can still see the yeah, marks. You still can see <laughs> the marks. They, they will be there forever. So yeah, the standard fire curve is a hundred years old. Definitely, everything changed since then. Our fires are not anymore cellulose fire, as they are also being called. Mm. We have way more plastics. oil-based materials, plastics. Our f- our furniture is plastic. Our clothes are plastic. So it, it, it's a different fire. So obviously the standard curve, and I'm telling you that the method comes with it. I want to also add one more thing. I want to say yeah. that the way we measure stuff in fire resistance testing on one hand, can be so very detailed up to a point where it actually doesn't really matter. And on the Mm -hmm. other hand, we take some things without any consideration that causes the biggest failures of all. So I I want to say, uh, give an example for that. On one hand, we do tend to stick with the temperature measurement. We do have huge science for the thermocouples, for the plate thermometers on their size, mm. what it's supposed to be, how we neglect the back radiation from the test specimen, but at the same time, we actually measure mostly the radiation that go that goes towards the, the plate thermometer. But on the other hand, we have this standard fire curve. And the standard fire curve, well, you know way better than me what is its origin. And you know how flawed it is in its very core. But we are still using it 100 years later. So we we do measure the deflection and define the criteria because of that. But at the same time, we measure the integrity by application of cotton pad. Yes, that's a very scientific approach. I mean... A very scientific cotton pad, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's very qualitative. And I, I think that's the part where where people are thinking. It's not like, I mean, for sure people are thinking how to improve it. But at the same time, we, we are stuck at, at some point. Fire testing is necessary. Product ranking is necessary. Product certification is necessary. All these things are necessary. And I think it would be difficult to, to, to scratch the concept. I mean, it's impossible to scratch the concept. We need that. At the same time, what we need is, is a little better understanding that, that fire engineering is engineering. Guys, let's let's engineer this. Like, 
I, I know it's easy when you write a law to state a class. Class goes with the standard that can change five times over the course of a decade. I mean, it, it's easy. Maybe it's maybe it's the way. Maybe if you think about the overall cost of introducing more sophisticated methods of testing of validating, maybe actually that's the cheapest and the easiest and the safest way. Actually, maybe it is. But still, I, I feel an obligation that we try to understand it better. We try to figure out some stuff. And I also feel there is a place for labs like ours in a, in a performance-based fire engineering world. I, I really like, you know, I, I don't like doing tests. I like doing experiments. And I think places like ours is perfect for experimenting, where you don't close yourself in this preconception of what a class is, what are the failure criteria, where you can really open your mind and discuss, is this charming on, on this element something dangerous or not? Does this lead to a failure or not? A very recent example, where, where, where you can discuss that, think about it, and decide whether it is safe or not. I really in, enjoy this way of working in the fire lab. However, this is a very, very minor part of of the, the everyday work we do here. Well said, and I envy you the opportunities you have as a person who doesn't have to deal with this fire resistance test, the standard fire resistance test, and you can... Outside of fans, fans are, yeah. fans are funny. I could make an episode about fire resistance fans, which I did. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, except that. But you have the freedom to experiment, to build any yeah. structure you want and to measure whatever you want. And that's what I said at the beginning. The fire resistance is what you think, what you want it to be. You can shape it, you can see stuff you we will never see on furnaces because of its limitations and because most of our tests are commercial tests so their basic purpose is to place the product on the market and the manufacturer sometimes they are but most of the time they are not involved in science they they virtually don't care some of them do let's give the credit to those who do some of them absolutely do but generally they don't generally they they, their aim is to place the product on the market with specific parameters and they are willing to repeat the test as many times as it's needed to to achieve it sometimes they will do some improvements sometimes they will just act on the fact that fire resistance testing is single testing. There is no statistics. You do not have to get three samples of the same product and each one of them has to achieve a certain parameters. You, you, you do a single test and there's nothing stopping them from, from exploiting that. And so, sometimes the, the problems that occur are, <laughs> are very rare and sometimes they are basically mistakes or something that happens once every million years or something like that. I can tell you about a test about glazed doors where... Okay, okay. Let, let's finish this depressing episode <laughs> with a little bit of fun yeah. that, on, on, on the cost of our clients, but yeah, with no names. <laughs> no names, but, but the, the test was hilarious. So there is a test. You, you, you can see yourself seeing uh, doors with some uh, side panel and some top panel. They're all made of glass. And the one fact you have to know about glass for it to work is that it has to break in order to expose the gel which is inside to heat. And then this gel expands and creates a barrier for poor heat. So for for the ones who are not in line with with properties of fire protective glazing is is literally many layers of glass and there's a gel between them so once the some of the glass falls out gel activates and this gel is meant to stop the fire not the glass itself exactly so the glass breaks 
the glass breaks and the glass falls. And once in a blue moon, you will see that the glass falls on the handle. And we've witnessed such tests. The, the glass fall on the handle, it opened the door, and the test was over. And it's, and it's a failure. It's like two, uh, two, two minutes into the test, uh, and it's over. Because, because first, you have a crack. You have a smoke leakage. Well, smoke itself doesn't fail integrity. I mean, you, have an open, you have an open door. But you have open doors. <laughs> and both frame loses its rigidity. So if it wasn't for that, a few minutes later, the top panel basically breaks completely, falls off outside the furnace, and the test is over. I, I think that's the number one funniest we've seen. No, there, there were some. <laughs> like if in furnace testing, it's always exciting when the things break. Uh, the clients have an absolutely opposite point of view. <laughs> For them, it's most exciting when they, things do not break, but uh, it makes this this job interesting. Okay, Piotr. Uh, Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for jo joining me in here. I guess I, uh, I'll be flooded with emails after this episode uh, with probably some people very angry at us. <laughs> However, I think it was important. I, I always thought uh, being open about what we do is the only way how the fire science can move forward. And I really wish we are the good guys trying to do something better. And if anyone knows how we can do our job better, please tell us. We will very gladly take your advices and we can also talk so you improve your understanding of our craft and and what's really happening in the fire lab that's a perspective that has not been in the podcast yet and god thank you so much for for bringing it here it was a pleasure and i hope people will will enjoy this episode there, there was a lot of doubt in this episode but in the end it's something that works and we would love to make it work better and uh yeah, you gave me an idea. I should do that episode a long time ago, Compartment Fires versus Standard Curve. Boy, that would be a funny episode. Thanks, Piotr, and see you around. Thank you very much, and see you all. Thank you, bye-bye. And as you may have figured it out, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope we didn't insult anybody personally. I mean, from my own experience, uh, people in, in the fire testing uh, industry are really great people, good people. We have some systematic challenges to work with, that's for sure. We have some competing interests to, to work around. And this brings challenges like the ones that have been discussed in this, in this episode. I hope the image does not go too negative after this. I mean, it's not... I just wanted you to understand some specific conditions some challenges that you may not be exposed to in your everyday work. And that will help you understand better the challenges that we have to go through. And that will let you understand the meaning behind the indexes a little bit better. And understand the challenges that go with that. And understand that, as I said many times, fire resistance does not tell you the whole story of fire behavior. It cannot be used as one sole only proxy of performance of materials elements in fire. It was never its purpose. Its purpose was ranking tool, classification tool, something that you can measure and compare against another product. That's that's the ultimate goal of, of fire resistance. And it should be treated like that, not as an ultimate proxy of safety. So yeah, thank you for staying with us in this very challenging episode. We, we had a lot of fun recording this, but uh, trust me, it was a difficult conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy we did it. And uh, what what else? I hope to see you here in the next week, next Wednesday. Another podcast episode waiting here for you. 
Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.